uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. bring ghosts from all over the world but we haven't got the ghosts in there yet we're out collecting the ghosts and we're making it very attractive to them hoping you know they'll want to come and stay at Disneyland so we're putting in wall-to-wall -wall cobwebs and we guarantee them creaking doors and creaking floors greetings my fellow galactic travelers and welcome back to planet 8 this is your mission commander Larry speaking to you from our hidden base Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Walt Disney cartoon, television, movie, theme park, everything and anything that surrounds Halloween and Walt Disney, or as some of us affectionately call him, Uncle Walt. We are very, very fortunate to have special guests with us today from the official Walt Disney Family Museum podcast, Bree Bertolaccini and Chris Mullen. Guys, thank you very much for joining us on Planet 8 today. Of course, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Hey, straight away, I'm a huge uh, Walt Disney fan and and Bob and Karen and I have been watching you know trick or treat cartoon with Huey Dewey and Louie um, ghosts um, I, you know I almost went to uh, uh, escape from Witch Mountain because I was just wanting to get like into all the minutia of, of what Walt put out um, why don't you guys give us a little bit of background of of what you do at the Walt Disney Family Museum um, and and the podcast and we'll get into more detail at the end of the show but just give us a a quick rundown if you don't mind. Yeah, well, my name is Bray, and I co-host the um, WDFM, uh, the official Walt Disney Family Museum podcast with Chris Miller. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm the marketing manager at the Walt Disney Family Museum and kind of do a lot of just more historical research and making that into kind of digital content. So uh, the kind of fun stuff with that. And I've been with the museum for almost seven years now did a little stint in uh walt disney world with chris actually oh, we nice. both did the disney college program and i worked on the kilimanjaro safaris and animal kingdom so uh very into i love uh anything walt disney so yeah chris what about you uh, well, I have a very similar story. Uh, I started at the museum back in 2014, uh, working on the floor as a guest experience associate. I was selling tickets, giving tours and the talks in the galleries, loved that. Um, and I was actually approached by Bree after our college program experience uh, to help with writing for the blog, which, you know, I love Disney history. Uh, I love telling stories about Walt and the things that he created. Uh, so I jumped at the chance and then, you know, a couple years down the line, um, Bree needed some more help um, with the uh, marketing department of the museum. And I jumped at the chance and I've been doing that ever since doing things like co-hosting the podcast with Bree, uh, helping to run the museum blog 
sending out our communications to members and other subscribers, uh, as well as putting things on our uh, website and on our calendar, uh, letting people know all the fun stuff that we have going on throughout the year. Awesome. Well, again, guys, thank you. And, you know, I've been to the museum on a number of occasions. And and if anyone has an opportunity uh, to, to visit them, um, I, I highly, highly recommend uh, doing so. Well, look, um, like I said, the reason we we um, had them on are having them on the show, um, we've decided to dedicate this episode to Halloween as told by Uncle Walt through various uh, media, be it the park, um, television, you know, the wonderful world of Disney had a number of programs that would come out, um, animation. Um, let's kick it up to the satellite. Karen, what is what is something that you recently watched uh didn't think you'd watch otherwise or maybe visited after many many years of not having seen before well something i just watched the other night and this was because as i doing some research for the the episode i looked over the the museum's website and was looking at some of the stuff that that you guys uh have in uh in the site and especially for the uh i think it was for the um haunted uh halloween uh tour or event and uh i know i've seen it many years ago but i hadn't seen it in a long time and this was the skeleton dance cartoon i think it was the first silly symphony uh cartoon from like 1929 and you know this thing is it's almost a hundred years old but it still is so brilliant the way that it's put together the all the sounds and the music and uh the imagery i mean it has all of those things we think about for halloween you know the the skeletons are obvious but then it has you know the bats and the spider and all that stuff and i just wondered if you guys uh had some thoughts on that or have any little tidbits that you'd like to share with the listeners on it Sure. Well, um, if as a little aside, uh, if anyone has seen uh, the recent film, Don't Worry, Darling, uh, the TV in the house is playing the skeleton dance on a loop, <laughs> uh, which is <laughs> I just about squealed in my seat when I saw that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the skeleton dance is a really important short in the Disney canon. Obviously, um, the year before that, Steamboat Willie premiered. Um, so it, it surprises a lot of people and it surprised a lot of people at the time that Walt was so interested in jumping into something brand new after he clearly had a hit on his hands. You kind of the first signal that maybe the Disney studios is going to work out after a lot of uh, failures and uh, issues with characters being taken from him. In the case of Oswald, the lucky rabbit, um, you know, people were clamoring for more mice. Um, but with the opportunity that Steamboat Willie afforded Walt in his studio, you know, they uh, no longer had the same issue with selling their shorts to theaters. Uh, of course, there's all the Mickey Mouse merchandise that uh, flooded the market, especially in the early 30s, which became such a huge, important uh, flow of cash for the studio. But for everyone seeing that Walt not only wanted to continue making Mickey Mouse shorts, but saw that as his opportunity to diversify, to uh, really test what could be done 
in animation, how they could push the artistic boundaries of the medium uh, and make just better and better stories. So that kind of started with the Silly Symphonies. And funny enough, this, uh, the start of the Skeleton Dance was actually pitched by uh, their in-house composer, Carl Stalling, uh, who uh, would, would later leave uh, the studio and make a lot of iconic scores for uh, like Warner Brothers and others. Um, but he had pitched the Skeleton Dance as this kind of side story. Uh, and then it was almost entirely animated by Ub Iwerks, who then was, wow. was Walt's right-hand man. Um, it was... I wanted to jump in really oh, yeah. quickly about Carl Stalling and that when he pitched the idea to Walt, it was... Walt really hadn't fleshed out this idea to do the Silly Symphonies yet. That wasn't uh, a thing just quite yet. And Carl Stalling was really kind of, um, he didn't love the idea of doing the Mickey, the scores for the Mickey Mouse shorts. And I recently read this uh, kind of letter from Walt about how he was in the Mickey Mouse shorts, you're following the action. That's what the music is doing. So if Mickey Mouse jumps up, the the music has to jump up. Um, and Carl really wanted to kind of figure out scores that were, uh, you know, kind of could be on their own and their own masterpieces and animation could kind of follow those. Um, and finally, Walt was like, well, you know, Carl might have uh, a good idea and hence the skeleton dance. And that um, was inspired by Edvard Gregg's March of the Dwarves. Um, so it has this spookiness to it. And even even um, that short really employed a lot of new animation techniques for the time, like mm -hmm. interchanging white and black cells. And that gives the effect of lightning strikes across the scene. So kind of adding that eeriness to it. Um, but the perfect balance of kind of spookiness um, and fun that Walt kind of always was able to kind of balance um, other than I would say in uh, the Chernabog night on Bald Mountain sequence at Fantasia. There is not a lot of fun being had in that. <laughs> That's just scary. <laughs> Well, I have fun watching it, I'll tell you. But, <laughs> no, I was always amazed when, you know, since you brought that up, I was always amazed at kind of the Disney style, whether it came to Halloween or villains, or, you know, it could be like the witch from Snow White, or it could be the whale from Pinocchio, where they could take a subject matter that is scary or spooky or creepy but only take it to a certain point so that it didn't lead to like kids running out of the theater or something. You know, it's like, it's very almost like a family friendly, scary type style. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Was that something that I assume Walt kind of spearheaded that, but. I, there's one story that's in our, I believe it's in our galleries possibly about the old hag sequence and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Walt showing it to his daughter, Diane, who um, would have been around five at that time. Um, and she was terrified of it and, you know, cried. So he, you know, even though he had a daughter at home, I mean, I, you know, he was still trying to make sure that these were something adults would also find pretty terrifying. Um, and it was just bordering on the line for children because um, that was at the end of the day. He wasn't making content or films uh, for children. So that's what I find kind of interesting that they aren't necessarily dumbed down, but they do hold the line. And that sequence of... Um, uh, in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves of um, of the old hag kind of, you know, turning around and being, you know, from the queen to the old hag and the kind of 
the the climax of it. It's actually um, uh, a reference to the 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that sequence is so mirrored um, uh, very similarly. So I just think, you know, how interesting that they were drawing on these influences of kind of spookier films of the era. Yeah, I mean, the Evil Queen was was described in an outline of her character as a mixture between Lady Macbeth and the Big Bad Wolf. So you can <laughs> you, you can definitely see how they how they nailed that one. And and when you think of uh, Walt's connection with scaring, you know, with with thrill, with horror, um, it really goes to kind of his filmmaking belief that, like Bree touched on, Walt didn't make movies for kids. He made movies for everyone. He made movies for the whole family. And he felt like you needed to have those elements, even the scary elements, um, because kids could handle it. Kids could understand it. Um, and if you really look at the history of Disney villains and what makes a Disney villain. Uh, I mean, you see it all across the board. You see kind of the outrageous, zany, cartoony villains, and then you see the the very you know terrifying, menacing villains. And I think you had brought up Pinocchio. I feel like that mm-hmm. film is such a perfect example of the the spectrum of the Disney villain because it has so many of all the segments. You know, you start yeah. off with Honest John and Gideon, uh, who you know are very much comic relief. They're kind of sinister and scheming, but you ultimately don't feel that same kind of fear as you do about Stromboli, who's big and blustery, uh, or about the coachman, who is very kind of menacing and in a professional mm-hmm. way that you know he really terrifies you because it's it's you know he's doing his job. You know, it's kind of scary in itself. And then you have Monstro the Whale, who is just this in literally inhuman eating machine, you know, that there, there's no sense in reasoning with, with Monstro. Monstro is going to do what Monstro is going to do. So you just have this entire spectrum of what is scary and terrifying about the Disney villain, all packaged in one film. So really, Pinocchio is a, a perfect Halloween movie. Plus, you can scare the kids into acting a little bit better sometimes. Don't want to get turned into donkeys, right? (laughs) Well, that's the thing because like, you know, obviously I've seen Pinocchio numerous times over the decades and years of my life, but I think if I hadn't, if I just saw it as a kid, the scenes with Monstro would basically still be in my mind or still be vivid today. I mean, they're that memorable. Yeah, definitely. I agree. But the coachman, I mean, that's almost like, you know, don't talk to strangers kind of guy, you know. Um, and I'll tell you that you know, the, the trees in the forest from Snow White still freak me out. I mean, you know, <laughs> you visit Disneyland and go through the ride. It it made an impression on you as a child. Um, you know, Walt was, we all agree, way ahead of his time. Um in, in coming up with these stories and surrounding himself with with these teams of artists. Um, you, you brought up a good point about, you know, um, there being four different villains in, in the Pinocchio film, kind of like blowing my mind right now. So. <laughs> but it's as I think about it, it's like, oh, my God, that's so accurate and true. Um, one of the things that really scared me as a kid was the dragon from um, Sleeping Beauty. Um, you know, that transformation, it was just huge, you know, it's something you wouldn't expect. And and there was just fire and, and, you know, danger um, and, and uh, a menace. It was so uh, just outrageous. Um, 
when when Walt was developing that story, I know he was working on the park at that time as well. And and it's like the castle kind of appeared in real life before the film opened up. Um, what kind of um, development went into that story, that dragon? I mean, um, were, were there storyboards or, or do you guys have any insight in that that movie? The um, Sleeping Beauty is a really interesting film. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know that much about the concept, but I will say the a big concept artist was Ivan Earl. And mm. he created these really abstract um, uh, pictures and concept art for the dragon and Maleficent. Um, and he has we we did an exhibition on him, the art of Ivan Earl mm. um, a couple of years back. And there's a lot of great concept pieces. He does really long ones um, for all the immaculate scenes in Sleeping Beauty. And he ended up would paint the backgrounds for them. Um, But even with just a couple of strokes of paint, you really get the power of um, these, you know, the the dragon. And we have that wonderful scene of just like inflamed and green flames and the dragon and the prince. Um, So even though uh, I think Walt was still pretty um involved in that film that film would be the most expensive film uh disney would make um it took almost i think chris correct me if i'm wrong over six years to make which is way too long for an animated film it almost bankrupt the whole the whole guacamole the whole studio um and so yeah chris did you have something yeah so it uh Walt's quote is six years and six million dollars to make uh, <laughs> Sleeping Beauty, which uh, if you know anything about the development of Disneyland happening concurrently, uh, it took 17 million dollars to open Disneyland. So a third of what it took to build wow. Disneyland in 1955 wow. was what it took to produce Sleeping Beauty. And I can add a little bit on Breeze Point. Um, Maleficent was designed by Mark Davis, who was one of Walt's nine old men. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, a small exhibition on Mark Davis, uh, Leading Ladies and Femme Fatales, The Art of Mark Davis. And we had some of his uh, Maleficent pieces on display. Mm. And, you know, you could really see um, just how kind of dragon-like her own, like even her in her fairy form, how dragon inspired with the horns and with the way that her robes would kind of flicker out kind of like flames uh behind her uh that it's all kind of part of that design language of of making you scared of her just right. from from beginning to end and something i mean uh, that film is is one of my favorites especially of, of the waltz era uh and part of that is that maleficent is terrifying right for so many reasons but she doesn't have this, you know, until uh, later films at, filled in more of her backstory. Um, it seems from the very beginning that she is just bad because she wants to be bad. Right. She doesn't get an invite to the party. Uh, she shows up and is just that is just who she is. And and uh, it, it really just kind of rocks you to the core that that she, you know, comes in, she curses Aurora and leaves and just is like biding her time. She's in the background somewhere scheming uh, until she turns 16. So uh, there's just so much about that character that makes her really as terrifying as she is. And a lot of that comes down to Mark Davis's original kind of 
design language for her. And of course he was a master of design as well. He did Cruella DeVille for 101 Dalmatians, another terrifying villain. Um, but he also did some, some heroes, uh, and heroines as well. Uh, he was also responsible for princess Aurora's design in sleeping beauty, kind of doing double duty there. Uh, and also famously designed Tinkerbell for Peter Pan. So he was very, very involved in all that. And would, diversify his career into uh, being an Imagineer at Disneyland and adding a lot of the humor into the Haunted Mansion. So another kind of right. spookiness. Yeah. Awesome. We're, we're, we're going to get there too. Yeah, we'll get to the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> I, I, it's kind of, it's a couple of the other cartoons I looked at. There was one that really kind of stood out for me. Uh, I think it was called like Pluto's Judgment. And it was like Pluto being a uh, cat chaser. Um basically has a dream where he essentially goes to hell and he faces a jury of cats and a <laughs> cat that's a uh, prosecutor. And of course he's found guilty. <laughs> and that has a lot of pretty heavy imagery in there and a lot of uh, kind of scary moments, you know, if you're, if you're a younger child, um, do you have any comments on that or any background on, on that cartoon? Not a whole lot of background, but I, you know, you could tell that hell was certainly not off limits. Uh, <laughs> you know, you see uh, Night on Bald Mountain mm-hmm. and you see Chernabog and all of his little devotees and they're they're dancing in this in this fire, this blaze, you know, which is very, very hellish. And then, of course, you've got um, uh, Cruella Deville who lives in Hell Hall. Mm-hmm. You have... Uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, another favorite uh, of all of ours, yeah. where uh, you, you end up literally in hell uh, <laughs> with with the judge that sentences him as well. So uh, very, very, and it's it, not even in the film either, just no. a complete invention for <laughs> the Disney park attraction. So you can tell that, I mean, the, this sense of eternal judgment and hell that, that you know, had been part of the culture uh the predominant culture uh, was certainly something that even in family films could be something that was, that was used to, to scare or to tease um, that made it all the more terrifying. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Bob, I don't know if you got around to watching the, uh, the scarecrow of Romney Marsh. I think Karen, you were able to. I saw a very, bad looking version on youtube <laughs> yeah it was very hard to find i i, I do vividly remember it for, just from being on the magical world of disney the magical when I was a world kid. of disney right and uh yeah i know around halloween they would usually show that so i remember it as a kid but i haven't seen that probably in 40 years yeah you know we were talking about things to watch and um karen had made mention um i i forgot about it you know, uh, honestly, I probably saw it when it came well, out. I, on I, one I, of only, the... I only brought it up because uh, a few years ago, I had been spending some time on a uh, message board that was mostly devoted to um, interests in like horror and, and monster films. Uh, but there was a section on Disney. And one of the things that people just raved over was Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. They just loved that film. And I had never seen it. And it is extremely hard uh, to get a hold of. And uh, so I mentioned it to the guys. And so then it was like, where can we find it? Where can we find it? <laughs> I will find it someday. I'm telling you, I'll find it. I, I was fortunate to find a, a, a 
DVD, uh, might be Blu-ray, but I think it's DVD online. And and so um, I was able to check that out. And, uh, you know, it's a lot like um, Robin Hood, but, but that mask. And the thing that I love, too, is here's Walt. And, and it was almost reminiscent to me of, of um, the Night Gallery because he, like, reaches over and grabs the book. And is like, well, let me talk about this book that I like. And, you know, he shares it with us. And then we get into you know, the story. And and he had the scarecrow masks on his uh, desk. There were like two or three of them on there. And as a kid, it's it's very, you know, again, he was great at, you know, these these visions of not horror, but but spooky, scary things. And these masks fit that, at least for me. Um, and the story was fun. I mean, it, it's a good story if, if any of our listeners have a chance to find it. Um, Bob's always uh, talking about getting a hold of physical media because someday the cloud may go away. So, <laughs> but I'm um, definitely a fan of physical media. But do you guys know anything about that film, or is are the rights tied up somewhere, or is that it's also the film that they never did any kind of Disney attraction on? There's it's never really been a part of the uh, Disneyland. Yeah, that yeah. I don't know of. That's I'll I'll have to do some digging myself because the, the, well, the, I, I think for, with Brie as well, the the live act, especially like the later, like the you know '50s '60s live actions, yeah. can be a little bit of a of a um, spot for us, uh, just because we have so much interest at the museum around the animated films. So that's mm-hmm. where a lot of our programming stems from. But would certainly love to get a lot more into the live action films. Yeah, I guess back then it was Buena Vista did most of the live action. Yeah, and my understanding is I was just happened to be looking at the list, um, but Walt Disney actually owned a lot of the live actions for his at his personal enterprise, Retlaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that those were sold back eventually, but sometimes I'm like, is it? Is that a reason yeah. why um, maybe we don't get those? But they, I think a big part of it is um, I know on Disney Plus, if there's a spot to recommend um what you want to see so there's a form and so if there's something that you want to see on there like a lot of these live actions um i think it has to do with demand what they're willing to you know put up if there's actually going to be a demand so um, i think a lot of people requested it you know (laughs) all the the listeners need to go on disney plus when we're done here (laughs) and go and and request it it's also known as like dr sin right like Mm syn yeah yeah yeah, I, I do think that it, Walt's interest and in kind of spookiness is kind of fun. Um, I do love in their workplace, they had a place called the morgue. Um, and the morgue was their um, it was deep within. They had this underground tunnel that connected the animation, um, the ink and paint and the animation department. And uh, the morgue, it, it really looks like it could be a real morgue. It's definitely very <laughs> spooky down there. And that was where they housed all of their archived animation. Um, that was their animation uh, archive. And so that eventually it got taken out of kind of that that room and is in a real archive now, their anima- animation research library. But he did, uh, well, did I, I don't know, it must be a video, but I see a lot of these photos of him kind of joking with the 
sign up the morgue and like, ooh, spookiness. <laughs> um, and really, it's just, you know, Mickey Mouse and lots of fun to be had inside the morgue. But it's yeah. where animation goes to die. <laughs> he uh, he even teased it in, in an episode of the Disneyland TV show, too. He gave a comical tour of the morgue where, you know, the opening shot of the episode has the lights oh, off. Yeah. And suddenly you see the large table with the white sheet draped over it, just like a real mortuary. And of course, Walt, ever the prankster, when he removed the sheet, it was just old animation artwork. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, another, well, you know, so, so the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh was, was part of the TV show. Uh, I, I think it was released theatrically in, in Europe, but I don't know that it was released here theatrically. I think it was on TV and there was like three parts. Right. Um, but the um, the other thing that I watched again because there was a witch, so Halloween, Walt Disney, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which I absolutely love and adore. That that movie, if you if listeners or you know the guys here on the podcast, if you have not seen Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and how timely, unfortunately, we recently lost Angela Lansbury, um, and she does such a wonderful job in that film and and in researching it it turns out that you know walt was having trouble with the mary poppins rights and um so then he he talked to the person involved with bed knobs and and broomsticks and there were two books actually so you know they were working on that then he had the sherman brothers working you know on music and there was actually a song that was going to be in mary poppins the briny sea that wound up in bed knobs and broomsticks and it fit a lot better um, that would have been a fun ride at <laughs> Disneyland. Jump on that bed and go scooting around the countryside of England. Um, they they had you know uh, it reminded me of the Invisible Man, the the Men in Armor and and the soldiers and the horses and man, what I think it won an Academy Award. Uh, maybe it was a soccer sequence, but. You know, there there was live action, there was animation. They bridged the live action and animation, which kind of harkened back to one of Walt's um, original cartoons. Oh God, I can't think of the little girl's name. Um, Alice. Uh, well, Virginia Davis first played her, but the Alice comedies. Yeah, yeah, and there were a couple of them, and actually they're showcased in in a part of the museum. I know as we start, they they show some of the vignettes. Um. Yeah. Anyway, that that was just a lot of fun. I, I know it's a, a live action, so you guys might not have a lot of insight into that, but I just had to mention bed knobs and broomsticks. We were talking also about Walt being ahead of his time. I was watching one Lonesome Ghosts cartoon. Mm. Oh yeah, where basically Mickey, Donald, and Goofy are Ghostbusters before there was any Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, I guess they were ghosts and. Was it ghost exterminators? I think they were. Uh, do you guys have any? To, anything on they that needed or? to deboo uh, yeah. the. <laughs> well, the ghosts actually called them out because they were they were haunting this place and they were lonely and they they looked them up in the phone book and called them out just to have fun with them, but. Well, for the Lonesome Ghosts, actually, it's interesting. Um, it's particularly noteworthy that um, they, the staff at Disney Animation invented transparent paint to actually portray the ghostly apparitions. Um, and it's definitely very effective. It reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, the the Pepper's ghost effects, you know, from yeah. animation um, mm. to live action or real life, I should say that not live action. <laughs> um, but, you know, just kind of very similar effects of like portraying ghosts, That's interesting. Uh, which I love. Yeah. 
always pushing the boundaries at Disney Animation. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, I know if anyone goes to the museum, I think one of my favorite attractions there is the multi-plane uh, rig that they have there. It's basically they can put cells. Well, I guess it was like it was probably glass on different planes. And so basically when they zoom in on one plate, they can actually zoom through the glass to the next one. And then you have like amazing depth. And uh, maybe you can talk about like what films that was, those were used on or how that developed. Sure. Well, it, it wasn't used on all, all of the films because it was more of a specialty shot um, that they would use specifically when they needed to achieve that illusion of depth. So it uh, first was used on 1937's The Old Mill, which itself mm. is a pretty spooky film as well. Mm -hmm. uh, right. you know, the this, this storm hits this windmill and you see, you know, the, the, the gears inside moving and, and snapping rope and you see the owls and the, and the other, the creatures that live in the little pond there um, reacting to the storm. Um, very, very good film. Um, so the multiplane camera was first used on that. That's also the same year as Snow White and Seven Dwarves to give a sense of the timeline. Uh, and then one say, of Chris, that is a wonderful deep cut. I, I did not have a chance to watch that, but I remember that uh, cartoon just chef's kiss. <laughs> yeah. And if you see uh, world of color at Disney's California adventure, they have a little old mill segment in there. So something oh, to keep an eye out. It's part of a larger montage, but there's definitely a, a dedicated old mill section. Um, so, right. so keep an eye out for that. Um, yeah, so the, the multiplane camera was used. It was used really effectively on Pinocchio in the mm -hmm. uh, one of the opening sequences where you pan in to the whole village and you go through several levels. Um, I mean, these shots were expensive to do and took, you know, dozens of, of artists, technicians um, to to operate this thing and to get those shots that they needed. Um, it ended up, of course, bumping up the cost of these productions. Uh, and of course, you know, they would use the multiplane camera in pretty much all their features. Um, and it would bump up the cost. And, you know, with World War II and the effects of, on international markets, it uh, made those films a lot harder to succeed in their original run. But it also kind of made them timeless, you know, to, to right. be able to achieve that effect. And you can see it now that those films stand up. Um, so yeah, they would use the multiplane camera all the way through, um, you know, in various effects uh, until uh, 1989's The Little Mermaid. That was the really? last okay. film to use wow. the multiplane camera. The The very next film, uh, The Rescuers Down Under, another personal family favorite of mine, uh, was made completely digitally, completely on computers. And from then on, that 1990 yeah. uh, film on, uh, all made on computers. So from 1937 with The Old Mill through 1989 with The Little Mermaid, the multiplane camera was quite literally state of the art. Chris, I would have thought for sure they used that in Beauty and the Beast, you know, that opening Sure. Yeah. Well, they were able to finally achieve using computers, those same kinds of effects. But yeah, you can definitely see all the multiplane um, influences on yeah. like, especially the ballroom scene with, mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, the late Angela Lansbury singing right, uh, Beauty yeah. and the Beast. Um, I, just a, a an iconic shot that will always be associated with that film. Um, very multiplane-like, uh, but and, and might have been planned you know, while they were planning the film could have been planned with the multiplane camera in mind. And then they 
you know, made the transition to computers and were able to replicate it. That's up in the air. That's uh, more than I know personally, but it would stand yeah. a reason that they were planning it just like any other feature. Uh, Cause that was very soon after, after they made the the switch to digital. Right. See, right. now you're going to, everyone's going to have to go back and watch the Disney films and look for those multi-plane scenes <laughs> and try to pick them up. Not a problem, my friend. Because <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, you know, if I'm picturing scenes and stuff, I'm thinking that they probably used it in Peter Pan for a lot of the flights over mm-hmm. the city. For the panning shots, London, yeah, the tracking shots, yeah. Or uh, even Jungle Book, some of the, the jungle scenes in that. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Very cool. I just always think of the patients. Every time I see a multi-plane scene and I look at our multi-plane camera and our galleries, I'm like the patience it would have to take to do, you know, the one, you know, it's what 24, uh, 24 frames, um, per, second. frames yeah. per second yep. and then moving. And then the backgrounds, I mean, there's so many moving parts on a multi-plane scene and that's why the scene in oh. Pinocchio, I mean, they say it's the most perfect scene in animation ever made um, mm. amongst animation historians that, because it's just all of the background, the people are moving throughout the, um, the, the town and the birds flying and the bells ringing. I mean, the patience and the artistry that it had to take to create just one of these multi-plane scenes is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, well, you you're, think, you're uh, moving you think these of, panels yeah. individually. You're, you, have, mm-hmm. you have people climbing up ladders to get to the top of this thing to, to, to film each individual right. frame. And you've got these wheels on the side that you're using to move it left, right, up, down. And you had to get that all perfectly aligned mm-hmm. for the shot that you wanted. It's just, it, it blows my mind just thinking it, about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, well, just designing it to, okay, we need this, this panel is going to have, you know, this painted on it. That panel is going to have that. And then obviously you have to picture, you know, one wider than the other, whatever, you know, just get everything set up before you can even start shooting. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing stuff. So, guys, before, uh, um, you know, we run out of time, uh, I want to talk about the Haunted Mansion. I know all the parks have a version of of a Haunted Mansion, but Disneyland was the first. Um, straight away, let me just kick it to you guys. I mean, what what insight uh, in, in the history? I know when when the New Orleans Square was proposed, um, they focused a lot of time and effort on pirates and there was a bit of a delay and unfortunately, um, Walt didn't live to see the the opening of of the haunted mansion. But I know he he uh, really had a hand in it. So uh, please take it away. Yeah. Um. To kick it off before that, to go all the way bef- back before Disneyland was even created, Walt sure. always had a vision of a haunted mansion. Mm-hmm. In the earliest iterations, um, in 1952, so Disneyland was built, um, debuted in 1955. So in 1952, um, he asked an artist, Harper Goff, to create the first illustration of a haunted house. And Walt said he wanted to include a haunted house somewhere off of Main Street. Um, and even in later iterations of this park design, um, artist Herb Ryman also included a kind of creepy little haunted house at the edge of Main Street. And the kind of thought behind it was every, you know, Walt was thinking of his hometown of Marceline, Missouri, but kind of these old um, small towns, they always have that one creepy house uh, that no, the kids kind of run past and, you know, that kind of thought. So Walt knew that there was needed to be a haunted house included in his park. Um, and so it would be much later back in 
down in, you know, in 1963 that a mansion was erected at Disneyland and it was, you know, what is going to be in there? But Walt was pretty insistent that it didn't he didn't want a dilapidated uh, spooky house to kind of uh, deteriorate the look of Disneyland. He wanted Disneyland to look amazing um, and having some kind of cobwebbed house just didn't quite fit the the scene of New Orleans Square. So and that's why we have this beautiful mansion. And then on the inside is where the spooky haunts um, are are in there. And um, I do love how Walt before the um, before the attraction was even completed. And, you know, Walt passed away before um, the attraction would debut. Um, But he was talking about that, you know, Disney's ghost relations department are accepting applications for (laughs) (laughs) uh, from ghosts wishing to enjoy their quote, active retirement in a country club atmosphere. So that was uh, the happy haunting grounds that he was hoping to have at Disneyland. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And I think too, uh, if you think about kind of the legacy of the Haunted Mansion, it also shows how Imagineering was going to proceed post Walt as well. I mean, if you look at the Haunted Mansion, uh, like Brie was talking about in its earliest concepts, you have Harper Goff, you have Ken Anderson, you have Marvin Davis, uh, all giving like a little bit of a take of what this haunted house at the end of Main Street could look like. And then once once it really starts going in the 60s, you have Mark Davis, Rolly Crump, Claude Coates, Yale Gracie. You have all these, I mean, real big Imagineering heavy hitters that are all giving their own kind of twist on what they believe should be inside and kind of as this master conductor of talent, Walt never explicitly says that, at least as far as I've researched, he never explicitly says that he's going to go in one way or the other. He's just inspired. He's pulling everybody's best work. Uh, And of course, at the end, you see that it's very much this team effort of, you know, the the scary bits that that were very much Claude Coates, the, the dark comedy of Mark Davis, the optical illusions and weird of Rolly Crump um, all together in this one now signature marquee can't have a Disney park without it kind of attraction. So Walt was very much kind of pollinating and 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 kind of inspiring everyone to to keep pushing what they were giving forward. And then as Walt passed, you know, when they had those conversations of, oh, what's what's Imagineering going to be like? It just continued to be that kind of team atmosphere where everyone's putting in. Um, So it's very much that like, you know, if if you were to look at Imagineering post Walt, it the Haunted Mansion is really kind of that case study. Yeah, that's one of the first things they did post Walt, right? To to finish that off. I mean, he was involved prior, but they executed mm-hmm. and opened um, a- after his passing. Um, mm-hmm. And well, I mean, who's who's to say what it would have looked like if it did open in the fifties? I mean, right. one of the one two of the major elements that are in that attraction are. Audio animatronics, mm-hmm. which debuted in 1963's Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room and continued to expand through the World's Fair with Great Moments of Mr. Lincoln, It's a Small World, Carousel of Progress, Ford's Magic Skyway. But another big thing that was put into the Haunted Mansion in the 60s, um, also part of the World's Fair, is the Omnimover technology, you know, mm-hmm. the Doom Buggies. Got you it. know, that would not have been in a 50s haunted mansion because the technology wasn't there yet they hadn't developed that technology to be able to kind of independently move you around a scene so that the the vehicle itself is a character that's showing you what you need to see around the room so it's it's very much also that that story of of the development of storytelling and imaginary technology too that that take you all the way through to what we know today 
you know, in 1969's Haunted Mansion that Walt, of course, didn't live to see open. Right. Yeah, the two amazing, I mean, that's usually the first ride I head towards, but. Um, <laughs> You're not alone but, in that. <laughs> yeah. Although now they, got, that, now the they got Star Wars land, I'm going to be dragged over there first. But um, <laughs> two things that always hit me about the, the Haunted Mansion is basically the narration at the beginning by Paul Fries. Oh, yeah. And then also Grim Grinning Ghosts mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Thurl's Ravenscrop. Um both of those, it's always stick in my head. And I know, I think there were some other narrations for the other Haunted Mansions. Maybe, yeah, I think Visit Price did one, and then there's one in French and one in Japanese and whatever. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm like a big Japanese movie fan. So I just remember Paul Fries and his voices in all the old dub Godzilla films and stuff. And then to hear his voice in the Haunted Mansion, you know, or realizing that's Boris Badenoff, like welcoming welcoming you into the mansion. But um, <laughs> do you have any background on how those two gentlemen were selected or brought in to do their parts? Well, Paul Fries was a he did lent his voice a lot in Disneyland. Um, so he was. I'm trying to think. I don't have it pulled up. Um, but he was a very popular guy in, in lending his voice. So he had a great instrument um, that was kind of perfect for for this. Um, the in terms of the song, um, the song "Grim Grinning Grim Grinning Ghosts" uh, that was developed by X uh, Xavier Atencio, who also wrote um, Pirates of the Caribbean song um, "Yo Ho Yo Ho," a pirate's life for me. So um, I always love that kind of fun fact. That is cool. And that he cool. hadn't written; he had never written a script before, too, before his mm-hmm. experience writing those songs uh, and and contributing to the script for. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion that Walt in kind of a classic Walt story, Walt just approached him with it. And X said that, you know, I, I've never done this before. And Walt just gave him a, well, I think you can do it. And yeah. <laughs> that was the time. just let him, you know, pushed him, you know, gave him, gave him the sport he needed and said, you know, I think you would do well with this. And I mean, those songs just in terms of the wordplay involved, I, it, they're just such rich songs. It's such there's such good storytelling going on in those too that really right. take you on an adventure as much as the attractions do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it all all comes back to Exitencio and uh, you know not wanting to say no to the boss, even if you're uh, <laughs> as 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 scared as some of the kids riding the attraction would be. <laughs> well, that's but- the thing. Yeah, you know, if the if the do if your doom buggy is going to break down. You want it to break down right by the tombstone so you can hear the, the whole song. Mm-hmm. But if you look on YouTube, if you look oh, look up Grim Grinning Ghosts on YouTube, there's actually a uh, video on there or film, whatever, of the faces from the tombstones, like the actors' faces against a black background. And you can see them like acting out the different parts of the song just with facial expressions. And uh, it's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, I wanted to tie back when I said I couldn't find my notes about Paul Freeze. Um, fun fact, we've been talking so much about um, the Disneyland TV show and Wonderful World of Color. Mm-hmm. He voiced uh, Ludwig von Drake. He did. Um, Donald Duck's uncle, right. you know, nutty professor. And he also does a lot of voices, did some voices in Pirates of the Caribbean um, and is the narrator of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. So just kind of oh. some of the ways that his voice has been sprinkled mm-hmm. in as well as um, it's not there anymore, but Adventures Through Inner Space as well. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a good. That's, fun. that's great. Now I know, like these days, you go to Disneyland during Halloween, and it's this big thing, and they've got a haunted mansion all decked out like Nightmare Before Christmas, and pumpkins all along Market, you know, Main Street, and all that. What was it like back in, let's say, Walt's days, early to mid '60s? Halloween would come around. Was there anything added to the park, or any, you know? Throw well, some cobwebs up or or what did they do? <laughs> Halloween certainly wasn't the industry it is today, uh, which is something to keep in mind. Um, the first event really uh, resembling Halloween uh, happened on, on Halloween 1959. So during Walt's time, they had a parade of the pumpkins um, and they had kids dressed up in Halloween costumes. Um, there are also photos of kids gathered in Holiday Land, which was kind of the, the picnic area of the park that, uh, of course, doesn't exist anymore, where they would carve pumpkins and such. Um, but, you know, as the years went on through the 60s and the 70s, and as Halloween was getting bigger and more popular, um, there was definitely this kind of struggle of how are we going to uh, make this holiday fit with our operation uh obviously through walt's lifetime they had the big two holidays a year christmas and easter where they would regularly do um special events Mm -hmm. but with halloween obviously you know you don't want adults coming in and with costumes with masks where you know there's potentially safety and security issues going on so it um their their celebrations were much more low-key um you know, they they brought some some Halloween type programming to Walt Disney World when it opened uh, in nineteen in the early seventies. It opened in seventy one, but I think more seventy two was the first Halloween event they had there. Um, but then, you know, what are what we think of today as the modern standard for Disney Halloween programming, the ticketed Halloween party uh, that didn't start at Disneyland until the mid nineties. Mm, so wow, okay. it, it's it's fair to say that what we know as Disneyland Disney Parks halloween events um Mm -hmm. didn't really resemble what they were doing in walt's time and is certainly much more of a recent modern invention well i think one one advantage back in walt's time is you did have like every sunday night was the magical world of disney or the wonderful world of disney so you had that every single week because you couldn't like oh i want to watch pinocchio tonight pop it into the VCR and go for it. It's like you had to wait for these things to be re-released or you had to wait for them to come on TV or you had to wait for whatever, but you had, you know, Walt on TV every week and it all tied into Disneyland. And so as a kid, you know, it's almost like you're totally involved in the whole thing between the movies and the show and the park. And, uh, yeah, I know now kids are probably involved in it because they stream everything and then go to the park. But uh, sure. I don't know, it I'm, seemed a little more special back then. Well, and and that was part of the genius of Walt getting involved in TV. I mean, Walt mm-hmm. had been hounded for the TV rights to his content since, I believe, the 30s. Like, well before TV was, you know, massly available, um, 
you know, Walt was, you know, asked in certain contracts to sign off his the, the television rights to his movies. And Walt really didn't know what television was going to be, but knew that if it was that valuable that people were asking about them, that maybe he should hold on to them. Uh, and then, of course, uh, with uh, wanting to open Disneyland, needing some extra funding, Walt would, of course, make it a stipulation of whatever entity he sold his television rights to, they would also have to invest in Disneyland. And then it became this thing where, you know, ABC becomes the first channel to show uh, Disney programming, has the show on Sunday nights, and Walt can just go directly to the people. And obviously three channels mm-hmm. at the time, not a whole lot of competition. Right. Families could watch all together. Uh, so Walt really could then use that new medium of television to give directly to the people his new project that was going to be so exciting that they all needed to drive to, to fly to, to take the whole family to, and that every week he could tease out either something that was definitively going into his parks or a story from a land, right. You know, like watching um, Davy Crockett, you know, out of, out of frontier land, mm-hmm. um, watching the man in space series for Tomorrowland. Um, you know, sometimes they would chop up like Alice in Wonderland and show that as part of the fantasy land segments of the show. Um, various things that he could say, you know, all of these live at Disneyland and, you know, Disneyland is a real place you should come visit. Mm-hmm. So it was just all kind of tied up in that ecosystem that he was able to create, which was another way that he was so ahead of his time. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, come see the Mouseketeers. They're at Disneyland this weekend. What? Right, they were. They were you literally know? there performing. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things I find interesting, you know, Walt's going to work on a, a, a program, uh, a show about Mount Matterhorn. Well, let's put the Matterhorn in the park. And and by God, he did. Um, you know, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan. He He was able to, he was an entertainer. He was creator. Um, but he was a, a businessman as well. You know, Th- that Sleeping Beauty Castle is iconic. That is, you know, the first thing you see in Disneyland walking down Main Street. I thought it was interesting. Decades later, they do the Pirates movie, you know, with, with uh, Johnny Depp. And, but they never did anything around. The, well, the Haunted Mansion, they they tried the Eddie Murphy and I, recently I watched The Muppets, uh, which, if you guys haven't seen, is, is charming. Um, around the Haunted Mansion, it was, I felt a, a bold move for Walt to say, you know, this isn't around a movie or a show. I want a Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. You know, you guys, well, viewers, you can't see my my office, but I have all this flotsam and jetsam on my wall. You know, I'm, I'm a baby Walt. I could put like whatever, Walt could put whatever in a park. I want a carousel. Bam, he'd put a carousel. I want a haunted mansion. I want pirates. I mean, the the man was amazing. Do you do you guys have any insight on um why he didn't do like a a, a wonderful well, he did, I guess, with the uh, the Osmonds and Kurt Russell toured the haunted mansion. I I remember watching mm-hmm. that. But there was no real like um movie or, or anything like that around the haunted mansion. Just any idea why that didn't happen or well the attraction wasn't settled during walt's lifetime i mean the the idea it it, you know he 
the it hadn't been settled by the time that he died and it wouldn't yeah. be another four years until the attraction actually opened right. so and famously they say about the development of the haunted mansion attraction there was so many cooks in the kitchen yeah. um and i mean the attraction went through so many iterations. It was going to be a walkthrough. At one point, it was thrown out to be a um, water ride where you'd float oh, wow. through, uh, you know, the Louisiana plantations. Um, you know, so there was a lot of different iterations that the Haunted Mansion went through. And it kind of sounds like um, based on all the research that's uh, that's been shown about the development, it's like there Walt didn't have a clear idea to develop content around it. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, initially I thought you were going to say that you would ride the rapids through the mansion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a ghost. There's a skeleton. Oh. That's cool. Yeah. Um, well, look, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. Um, any last thoughts or um, comments or anything you want to make before we get into our sensor sweep? Uh, the only thing I wanted to bring up, and I know uh, I brought it up in an email. I don't think anyone knew much about it, but... Um, when I was growing up, anyway, there was uh, the LP, the thrilling, chilling sounds of the haunted house, which uh, I kind of looked up a little bit. It, it came out in 1964 with like a white cover, and it came out again in 73 with the orange cover. I actually have the white cover down in my basement somewhere. But <laughs> side one was like 10 stories, and uh, I guess they were narrated by uh, Laura Bolsher, O-L-S-H-E-R. And the side two was like 10 tracks of just sound effects. But all the sound effects in the album were all from like the Disney library. Mm. And uh, just quick aside, when I was a kid, I was on, I was handing Halloween candy out on the porch and uh, I had that record playing. And on the second side, there's a whole track of just like cats fighting. And somebody pulled up in a pickup. And they had a great Dane in the back of the pickup. And he just jumped out of the truck and started running up my stairs. I'm like, hey, turn it off, turn it off. <laughs> but uh, no, it was just, it's an iconic album for, for oldsters like me. Um, I guess it came out on Disneyland Records. Um, and all, like I said, all the sound effects and all that came from the Disney library from all the films and, and shows that they had done. And uh, What's was, interesting about that record is that that was most people's first um first time experiencing the haunted mansion mm -hmm. and the attraction hadn't come out yet and for a lot of people i've i listened to um a couple of interviews but i believe um one aspect of that lp there is a like a ghost host narration mm -hmm. is that something um, like that and, yeah. yeah and it was narrated by pete renaday and so for a lot of people they associate that particular voice on that LP as being their version of the ghost host um, versus Paul Freese's version of the ghost host who would later do um, the narration of the Haunted Mansion attraction. So um, I, I love that. Uh, I, I don't know a ton about it. I've, I've listened to more interviews about it, but, um, mm -hmm. but I love how that's, you know, most people kind of had those spooking, thrilling, you know, creepy sounds of the haunted mansion. Well, I think any kid no. that, that had their house decorated for Halloween and, and all that, they would put that on, you know, mm -hmm. as kids walked up to the door. Sure. But, uh, cool. I know there was one, you know, if people go out and listen to this, this album, I know there's one track on side one that's very un PC, I guess, mm -hmm. called the Chinese water torture. Oh. Uh, so <laughs> If it was ever re-released, I'm sure that track would not be on there. But 
maybe just name something else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd kick myself if I didn't mention Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman. Yes, we haven't uh, talked about that one. I love the <laughs> legend of the Sleepy Hollow. Yes, yes. We kind of touched on on Mr. Toad's ride. Um, but please, could you give us a little, well, that, little bit that's of That's another great insights? song, too, in there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it was um, it was sang by Bing Crosby. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Bing Crosby yeah. offered the narration of the film. So I, I just love when they bring in kind of these more popular um, artists of the time in that era in particular. They mm-hmm. um, had had lots of different uh, singers and songwriters um, come in on these package features. And this would be the last package feature. Um, and the story is based on Washington Irvine's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And that was first published in England in 1820. Walt actually visited um, the area of Terrytown um, mm. on the Hudson River of New York to do research for this particular film. Um, and the the filmmakers put in a lot of research for colonial period um, ties to, to make sure the film was uh, portrayed, had historical accuracy to it. Um, cool. So I, I just love the, the action. I, I believe, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, that the... Um, the Headless Horseman was animated uh, by one of Walt Disney's nine old men, Wooly Reitherman. Um, and there's just great horse uh, horse animation. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely very, very thrilling. Chris, did you have any fun facts about it? Uh, not any anything more than you've covered. Um, there isn't really enough written about The Legend of Sleepy Hollow or about The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Uh, respectfully, but it's just, it's such a fun twin bill. Like, you know, you were mentioning it was the last of the package features, the package features kind of come out of the world war two, uh, you know, creating these segments, uh, to use, uh, to give their animators some work and also to, to be able to put things together that were too long to be considered shorts, too short to be considered features. Mm. Um, so this was kind of a, a result of that. And it's probably one of the most well-known of, of the time period, um, but, you know, you, you think, what is it really that combines, you know, what is it that, that ties these two stories together? Not a whole lot, despite, right. you know, the, yeah. the areas, <laughs> you know, the eras that they come from. Um, but even then, uh, it's a bit of a stretch, but they're just such fun, wild rides. And they do involve a lot of Walt's very core animators that would, would design all these famous characters that we know and love today uh, and also would be there. Most of them would still be there as Walt passed and as they were taking the direction of the studio into the future. So it's one of those where they're all together and they're all working on some character in either of these stories. And it's just a a treat for an animation historian to watch. That's very cool. Um, Listeners, I'm going to have Karen post a picture, but I'll show you guys. I am a huge fan of the headless horseman. This is an ornament that came out a couple of years ago of, of the headless horseman on his uh, horse with the sword. I, I love that. Well, I love Mr. Toad too, actually, but I, um, yeah, that segment in particular, I don't really necessarily care for Ichabod, <laughs> but the headless horseman, I mean, that whole sequence is just absolutely terrifying. There really isn't a ton of humor embedded in it mm-hmm. other than the fact that ichabod gets away like that is the most like oh okay well the headless horseman right. laughs so there's humor yeah. in it he go. finds he a lot of humor him. in it <laughs> he throws that pumpkin head towards the camera and that comes oh, out at you that's great well yeah. the beauty of the ending is it's it's ambiguous they they say well there's legend that ichabod married and had children and they show you know a potential 
uh, Ichabod, but you know, maybe he didn't. Maybe that was just the narration. So, oh, I've never heard that theory before. Yeah, I like that. Spooky. So that's mm-hmm. funny. Well, look, guys. Um, uh, this is the point in the podcast where we uh, usually have our censor sweep, but we have guests on today. And please, Bree and Chris, um, feel free to come back to Planet Eight anytime you like. Um, we most certainly will keep your uh, information handy, but um, give our listeners a little more information on what's happening at the museum. Uh, tell us a little more about your podcast. Where can we find you? Where can we hear you? Yeah, you can find WDFM, the official Walt Disney Family Museum podcast, wherever you find your podcasts. We also post our um, video version of our podcast that's available with all the um, closed captioning and um, show notes. We post that on our YouTube channel at WDF Museum. Um, And you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter um, at that same handle. So, yeah. And uh, currently what's happening at the museum, uh, we have... One special exhibition that's currently open and one that is soon to open. Uh, Right now we have Walt Disney's The Jungle Book Making a Masterpiece, which is a deep dive into everything about producing uh, 1967's The Jungle Book, which was the last animated feature film that Walt personally produced, personally supervised. Uh, It was curated by uh, one of our good friends, um, Andreas Deja, who uh, famously uh, was the key uh, animator, supervising animator on Jafar in Aladdin, Scar in The Lion King, Gaston in Beauty and the Beast, Lilo, uh, and just, and many others. Uh, And he also has a very large collection of animation artwork. He's very passionate about sharing the the history uh, that got him inspired uh, to be an animator. watching the jungle book in particular inspired him to, to start along this path. So he's always felt uh, like the, the story of how the jungle book came to be and, you know, the impact of Walt's passing and kind of its legacy today were all really important to, to tell. So that special exhibition is in our uh, Diane Disney Miller special exhibition hall, and it'll be running through January 8th, uh, 2023. So still have a couple more months to see that. Um, and uh, upcoming, we have uh, our Spirit of the Season Community Art Exhibition. Uh, we solicited some uh, our, our local and global community uh, mm. to create artworks inspired by what this season of the year upcoming uh, means to them, their family traditions, uh, and also tied it a little bit in with our Jungle Book Exhibition. So uh, that will be opening Thursday, November 17th, and will run through the holiday season. So if you're in town, come by, check out both uh, Spirit of the Season, a community art exhibition, and Walt Disney's The Jungle Book, uh, Making a Masterpiece. Awesome. Um, Let me ask you for my own personal, uh, will there be another Christmas with uh, Walt little video that's shown in the theater this year? Good question. We're uh, we're still working on what our films through the end of the year are, uh, but as soon as we get those finalized, uh, they will be up on our website, uh, WaltDisney.org, and also WaltDisney.org slash calendar. Very good. You know, I'm going to save those URLs, kids. So uh, I've 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 done that uh, program before, and and I'd love to do it again. And and uh, guys, uh, listeners, if you haven't been to the museum either online or in person, honestly, you are going to have the time of your life. There's a gift shop as you um, exit, uh, and a little uh, coffee stand. 
Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff you guys can can avail yourself there um, at the museum. It, it really is a, a day adventure. They have a bunch of awards and accolades. Um, you guys still have part of Walt's apartment in the front lobby there. Yeah, we do. We have the original uh, furniture that ha- that was in Walt's apartment. We even have the original lamp that was in uh, in the window. And um, so we we uh, sometimes rotate that furniture out. But so there's a, a beautiful set up currently in our in our lower or in our lobby, and that's free to the public. The awards lobby, um, you're free to walk through and see all of Walt Disney's um, Academy Awards, um, as well. You know the famous Snow White and the Seven Dwarves yeah. uh, Academy <laughs> Award. Um, and so, yeah, and we're located in the Presidio of San Francisco. So I don't know if people, yeah. but yeah. And they also have the, uh, that big tabletop model of Disneyland as it looked back in Wall Day, like in the mid sixties. That, that's inside. Yeah. That's yeah. down below that. And mm-hmm. they, God, I mean, they have, they have his, his train is in there. I mean, his personal collection of miniatures, um, we could do a whole nother episode just on the museum guys, but, um, <laughs> well, you can listen to our podcast where we do go through every, the, go. <laughs> all the galleries of the museum. Um, and yeah, Walt Disney's, uh, our miniature model of Disneyland, Disneyland of Walt's imagination. Um, not one particular period of time, but spans from its inception in 1955 through Walt's death of 1966. And it was designed uh, by Kerner Optical. You, you spoke about mm-hmm. Star Wars land. Um, the same folks who, uh, you know, kind of developed the special effects for Industrial Light and Magic and Lucasfilm also created our model. So a little touch oh, of um, a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> little, little side plug next to the museum down the way is the Yoda fountain with the little statue of Yoda. <laughs> so you guys, like I say, it's, it's a fun time. There's a bowling alley. Uh Anyway, uh, thank you again, Bree and Chris, for being on the show. We uh, absolutely love and adore you guys. Appreciate the fine work that you're doing on behalf of Walt's legacy. And um, you guys take care. Listeners, it's the end of the podcast. Till next time, peace out. Have a great Halloween season. (laughs) Yes. On this night of spicks and gnomes, of swooning leaves and cringing crones, of legends told from ear to ear, of shrieking cats that grin and steer, over the hill and past the tree, a haunted house they're said to be, with chill and mist to pierce your soul. And whispering winds to keep you cold. Heed the whisper straight from hell to keep you safe from witchy spells. For through the night of devilish play, all who tread will rule the day. <laughs>
By George, he's got it. It is the end.